Father God, we thank you for Jesus, the Saviour of the world. And this morning we pray for Duncan as he faithfully preaches your word about the risen Christ. Prepare our hearts also, Father, but bless and anoint Duncan mightily. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. And I'm going to ask Bev to come out now and do the Bible reading. Thanks, Bev. I'm reading John. I'm reading John 13, 1 to 17. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thanks, Bev.
friends, lovely to be here again. Um, Adma, welcome to Stuart's, um, especially if you're visiting, great to see you as we look at this great story. But before we get there, um, there's another story I wanted to share. It's a story about three young men in the 1930s. You, um, perhaps you've heard this story before. Uh, it's a, uh, these three young men, they got onto a bus in America, uh, and there was this lone man sitting at the back of the bus. And the three guys... Um, they thought they'd have a bit of a, a, bit of, bit of a go at him. So they started um, having a bit of fun and picking on him. They started insulting him. Uh, but this guy doesn't respond. He just kind of stays sitting there at the back of the bus. And these three young guys, they keep going, they ramp it up. It gets more and more and more, more intense. They keep sort of insulting him and uh, it gets more and more heated until at one point the bus comes to a stop and the man stands up. And all of a sudden these three guys see this, this man who stands up and he's bigger than they thought he was, much bigger. Um, he, he kind of walks past them on the bus to go out, but as he goes past, he hands him a business card and then he just leaves the bus and walks on his way. And the, these three guys are kind of a bit curious. They, they, look out, they look at the business card, they huddle around and they read it. As he's walking away, it reads, Joe Lewis, Boxer. I don't know if you know who Joe Lewis is, but these three blokes had a very near miss. Uh, they'd just been having a go at, at uh, the man who would soon become the heavyweight world champion in boxing, uh, and he held that title for 12 years. Um, it was ranked by the International Boxing Research Organization ahead of Muhammad Ali as the greatest boxer of all time. Um, and if he wanted, Lewis could have defended his honour against these young punks, right? Easily. Uh, apparently he got a reputation of, uh, he was known he could, he could punch out a, no, his punch was so strong he could punch a horse out with one hit. I don't know how you get that reputation. I don't think about it too much. So maybe, yeah. But um, he, he could have easily defended his honour against these young punks on the bus, but he chose to hold his power back. Um, apparently... Um, uh, Lewis was known for his humility. Uh, it wasn't a one-off thing. He was known for it. It's, it's, but it's a great story, right? It's, a, it's this kind of excellent I image of someone who had immense power but held, held it back <laughs> and didn't use it. He, he kind of held, held on to it. We love seeing that. And we kind of instinctively know it's a bit of an attractive quality in someone, right? This whole, uh, when someone... Um, lives out in a humble life, the capacity to let go of your own status and power for the sake of others. Um, but what's, what's really interesting is that that, that hasn't always been the case. Um, there's uh, a, very, a really fascinating book by an Australian author called John Dixon. He wrote a book called Humilitas. He's a historian guy uh, and a, a Christian minister as well. Um, he, he traces the way in which this valuing of humility didn't exist at all, actually, in the ancient world. Um, this whole idea of being humble was actually despised as being weak and pathetic. Um, in the ancient world, you were much more concerned with honour and shame, protecting your honour, winning honour, and avoiding shame for yourself and your family. And what, um, what Lewis did on the bus would certainly not have been seen as something that was noteworthy. 
Uh, but Dick, what Dixon does in this book, he traces this humility revolution uh, in the ancient worlds. How, it kind of tells the story of how we got to where we are today. Uh, and he shows that from a historical point of view, it all centers on this character, this person, this person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the account we're looking at today is right at the heart of it. You couldn't get anyone with more status and power than Jesus. Um, we've seen that as we've looked through John's Gospel over a long time now. Uh, Jesus is held up to us in this account of his life. He's held up to us as the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, the promised King of God's people, the one who perfectly reveals God the Father to humanity. And yet, he's also the one who doesn't use his status and his power for himself. But as we're going to see today and as we keep reading John's Gospel, the one who pours himself out for the good of others in loving service of them. So if you have your Bibles there, it really help. There's a bookmark in the passage um, if you've got a church Bible. But we're at chapter 13 in John's Gospel. Um, and we saw last week, I had uh, some diagrams up last week, I don't have them up this week, but um, uh, if you're here last week, you remember what we saw was this really comes at a real turning point in the whole Gospel. Uh, chapter 13 is a, a real turning point. It, it, the time frame zeroes in, if you remember. Uh, the time frame zeroes in from uh, going over a number of years in the chapters leading up to this point to from here on in just a few days. Um, the focus narrows from Jesus' public activity as he's going around in, in public. Now for, the, for um, really uh, the rest of the gospel, right up until his death, he, he, the focus of the book narrows into Jesus' private teaching of his disciples. He's going to prepare them for what's coming. And verse 1 really sets the scene. So you can see it up there, verse 1. Uh, it, sets the scene, it sets the scene for our passage, the, the account we're looking at today, but it also sets the scene really for the rest of John's Gospel after this turning point. Uh, this is a really critical verse, verse 1, to, uh, for everything that comes after. So I'll read it for us. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, hopefully that, whole, that phrase, the hour, will, be really, will kind of stand out. We've talked about it before. Uh, it comes again and again in John's Gospel, as this hour that is coming for Jesus, this moment in his life that everything's pointing towards. Um, Jesus knows that this moment, this hour has now come. This hour, to, he says, to leave this world and return to the Father. And you notice also the setting of it is just before the Passover festival. Um, the Passover festival was this great annual reminder for the people of Israel, this great reminder of God's incredible rescue of them out of Egypt out of their slavery in Egypt through the, if you remember, the, through the blood of the lamb that was shed for them and um, sprinkled over the doorposts and poured out in their place. So all of that's in the background. 
Um, but the last sentence in that verse uh, really drives home, it gives this beautiful insight into what is motivating Jesus as he, in, in this Passover moment, his hour having come, as he heads towards his hour. What is it that drives him? It is his love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. It could be saying the end to the end of his life. That's how the story plays out. Probably, though, it means something more like to the fullest extent. Loved them completely, as much as it's possible to love them. And, and in fact, for Jesus, those two things are the same thing, right? To love them to the fullest extent was also, also to love them to the end of his life. <laughs> to the end. He loved them to the end. And that kind of frames not just, as I said, not just what follows now, but everything that comes out from this point as Jesus heads to the cross. This is what's driving him. His love for his people. We'll come back to that. It's just so crucial. But what follows um, as we get into the kind of scene that's set here, what follows is this really scandalous story. It would have shocked everyone who was listening, uh, who was there, um, especially as we kind of mentioned in this honour-shame culture. Um, Jesus does something that only uh, really the slaves um, would do, this, this foot washing. Uh, verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. Before we get to the foot washing, though, there's this interesting little comment that John puts in. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. We're going to focus more on that next week as John returns to this betrayal of Jesus by Judas. But isn't it interesting that he puts that in here as Jesus goes ahead? Judas is there. Jesus washes Judas' feet. But the wheels are already in motion for this hour that's coming. Um, And what you see here is, is Judas willingly takes part in this, but there's also these dark spiritual forces at work, the devil at work against Jesus. But as we've kind of been saying, there's, there's more uh, going on here. What's really shocking is what comes next. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so, interesting to pause there, right? And so, so Jesus knows this. The Father's put everything under his power and authority. He's come from God. He's going to return to God. We find out later in a few verses that he also knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows about what's happening with Judas too. He knows all of this. And so what would you expect? He gets up, you know, he smites, calls down his mighty power upon Judas. Um, certainly not what happens. You wouldn't expect this in a million years. Jesus knows all of this about himself. So, verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, 
drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See what that, do you see what that, that so in verse 4 is saying? What Jesus does here is not in opposition to his power and his authority and his majesty. Um, what Jesus does here is actually the full expression of his glory and his power. The power of God expressed in this act of loving self-sacrifice. And he does what slaves would do, what would have been absolutely scandalous for a Jewish man like him to do. It was a job for the lowest of the low, and yet Jesus does, uh, he gets literally low, right? He gets down on his knees in front of these stunned disciples and starts washing their smelly feet. I mean, can you feel the shock of it, right? I, I, I mean, I'd be embarrassed if I was one of the disciples. I'd be thinking, oh no, how, you know, how smelly are my feet today? <laughs> I don't want Jesus to know that. And there's this stunned silence as Jesus goes around to each of these disciples. Um, until he gets to Peter. And don't you love Peter? Uh, he, often, he often does this. He kind of just blurts out what everyone's thinking. One of my favourite kind of uh, characters in the Gospels, <laughs> uh, Simon Peter. Uh, God used him in a remarkable way. He's, um, but uh, he, he blurts this out. Verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And we're supposed to kind of read into that like a real disbelief. Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies in verse 7, You do not realize now what, I'm, what I am doing, but later you will understand. And this is, this is really important what Jesus says here. He's saying that, You'll only understand this, Peter, in the light of what is, about, what is coming, what's about to happen. You'll only understand this looking back after my death and resurrection. Um, what this does and what Jesus goes on to say, it, it means that what Jesus is doing here is kind of like a parable. If you know what the parables are, they're stories that Jesus tells. Uh, if um, A helpful kind of way to know what a parable is is a... Heavenly, no, no, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, this is sort of like Jesus is telling a parable, except instead of telling a story, he acts it out. Like an enacted parable. And why this is so important is because the, the foot washing would have been an amazing act in and of itself, just on its own, Right? Uh, incredible act of humility and service of these guys. But if that's all we'll see, we're going to miss the, the, really the main point of what Jesus is driving at. Um, what Jesus does here is actually meant to point beyond itself so that only after his death and resurrection will they know what he's really getting at. He's meant, it's meant to point beyond itself to a greater thing, to another, a deeper a more wonderful washing that Jesus offers. But Peter doesn't get it, and he won't have a bar of it in verse 8. No, said Peter, 
which is interesting because he's just called him Lord, right? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You don't, that's, but he says no to the one who he has called Lord. He says no, maybe in a sense of confusion, or disbelief. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I think what's going on here is that Jesus is talking about this deeper spiritual washing that this, this um, action he was doing, this enacted parable was pointing towards. And he says, without that, without that, you can't have any part of Jesus. Um, unless I wash you, unless you are cleaned by me, you have no part with me. Jesus is going to talk more about this as we go along, but Peter doesn't see the deeper meaning. And, and again, this is kind of true to form for Peter. He flips to the opposite extreme and he goes all in, right? It says, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. Um, he kind of, you know, he flips to the opposite. And then, don't you love this as well? Jesus kind of... You know, not maybe, uh, I don't know what expression was on Jesus' face, but he answers, he, he, he wants to kind of teach Peter here something important, I think. He says, uh, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, it's already clean. Um, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. See what Jesus is doing here, and this is where we can, we can know that actually what Jesus is talking about is more than just a physical act of washing. There's a deeper cleaning that is going on. It, it, and it, it, he, there's two types of this washing that Jesus gets at. Um, this, he talks about this one-off bath. Um, this one-off bath that you, that you never have to have again. My kids would be happy about that. Uh, you never have to have it again. A once and for all washing that ha- happens when you first come to Jesus and trust him. The disciples had it already in a kind of anticipatory kind of way by, by placing their faith in Jesus. The, the disciples already had this, they'd had this washing, this cleansing, except for Judas. So Jesus talks about this, this bath, this one-off kind of washing, but then... This regular, ongoing, everyday kind of washing as we come to God with our ongoing sin. We remind ourselves of the gospel that cleanses us and gives us re- the renewal that we need to repent and change. And, and you notice for Jesus, it's the first one that's the, f- the fundamental one. Um, the one you need first of all. And without it, it nothing else matters. You, you can't go... You know, uh, and, and you see that in the example of Judas, right? Judas is washed by Jesus, has his feet washed. He goes through that kind of, that kind of washing, but he doesn't have the deeper one, the more important one. You can go through all the rituals, but unless you've been washed by Jesus in that fundamental way, it won't help. There's kind of two kinds of washing on view here. 
Uh, it's really a stunning, beautiful image, isn't it, of what Jesus is about to do as he heads towards the hour, his hour at the cross. Uh, he has come to bring cleansing for sin, to wash people, both in a, a kind of one-off, decisive way, but also in this ongoing way. This isn't going to come alive to you, friends. This reality won't be precious to you unless you know the reality of the stain of your own sin, of your rejection of God, of your looking to false gods for your fulfillment and your peace, of not trusting and obeying him as you were made for. Uh, it's, it can be really easy, can't it, to kind of hide that from ourselves? To whitewash things? Jesus, one of Jesus' great kind of criticisms of the Pharisees was they were, they were whitewashed tombs, nice on the outside but dead inside. It can be easy to hide things like that. It can even be easy to go through the motions of what well, kind of similar to the foot washing, you know, uh, without having that deeper stain dealt with. You can be a part of a church and um, do the things that you know Christians do without actually yourself having been washed by Jesus, having your sin dealt with, washed away completely. Now, I'm going to pray a prayer of confession later before we share in the Lord's Supper together. Um, there's a fuller version of it printed that you should have had in your handout. I came across this prayer this week um, by a, an Australian pastor and theologian called Peter Adam, and I was really struck by it. Um, I've kind of modified it for us to pray together before we share in the Lord's Supper. But why not, uh, please do take that home, and, and why not have a go this week? Um, Try praying that to yourself, for yourself every night this week and see what God does. See what he reveals to you about your own hearts, about may, maybe your, your need for that initial cleansing, that deep washing that Jesus offers, and, or, or maybe your need for that ongoing washing as you come again and again to the gospel and to Jesus. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus paints about what, his, what he came to do at the cross, but there's a second thing that this account puts before us. It's um, this incredible self-giving is not just what Jesus does for us. You notice as, you, as we read on, it's also a model for Jesus' people to follow. Verse 12, when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus sets them up a, a framework, a pattern of life, a, a, a mental kind of disposition. Yeah? Uh, some have read this as a literal command to actually wash each other's feet and kind of have institutionalised it. I don't think that really gets to the heart of what's going on here. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, there's no mention of any kind of institutionalization of this foot washing in any, anywhere in the New Testament or the early church. But we've already seen that Jesus um, frames this action that he does as something that, you know, you know how he's, um, we've, we've been looking at his signs through John's Gospel. And the important thing about the signs is not that you look at the sign itself, but you see where it's pointing to. I think something similar is going on here with this enacted, this acted parable. Um, it's wonderful in and of itself. Jesus calls us to to follow him in it, to copy him. Um, but he frames this as something that really points to his death and resurrection and the spiritual washing he offers through his far greater act of loving, humble service as he offers his life in our place. I'm going to read um, a a quote by uh, a theologian called Don Carson writing on this, which kind of sums some of those things up. Carson writes, The heart of Jesus' command is a humility and helpfulness towards brothers and sisters in Christ that may actually be cruelly parodied by a mere rite of foot washing that easily masks an unbroken spirit and a haughty heart. See what he's saying there? It's kind of a bit wordy, but do you get what he's, what he's saying? Yeah, the heart of this is actually a, a humility and helpfulness towards brothers and sisters in Christ um, that is actually easily parodied by a, a mere rite of foot washing that easily masks an unbroken spirit and a haughty heart. You can go through the motions of an action without, with a heart that is far from God. There may be some value in actual foot washing. Um, it's not part of my kind of, I guess, Christian tradition. Um, but it would be a mistake to stop there and not to see where the, at what's lying at the heart of this account, the heart of Jesus' com- uh, word to us. And that's, I think that's what actually connects us to this story too. Jesus hasn't actually washed my feet, hasn't washed your feet, literally. But if you're trusting him, he has washed you. He's taken off his cloak and knelt down. And made himself nothing for you. He has washed you in a far greater way. He has served you in a way that is far more shocking even than what he did there. The Lord of all, who had all authority and power. Um, This was a beautiful picture of him giving up his dignity and status for the sake of his people. He's done that in an infinitely, even better, more wonderful, more shocking way. At the cross, he gave up everything. He gave up his power. He gave up his all at the cross to wash you clean. 
to wash clean every person who comes to him in faith. And friends, if that is how he has served you, Jesus says that's how you must serve one another. Of course. How could it be any other way? Why would we want it to be any other way? Um, we have our Lord's precious promise. Did you notice that right at the end in verse 17? That those who live like this, who, who, those who have received his, his cleansing, that initial bath and his ongoing cleansing in their life, those who have received this and who in thankful response love and serve each other, those who do these things will be blessed, will come will be living in line with reality. We'll be blessed. So friends, how, how can God's word, how will it come home to you today? I guess really the, the big question is, have you been washed by Jesus? Um, maybe if you, you can say, yes, I, I have in that kind of once-off once for all fundamental way but maybe it might be for you that you've just forgotten something of the completeness of that washing those who have had a bath don't need to come again to have a bath Jesus washes us again and again in the water of his gospel but if you have come to him in faith you, have, you lose all your guilty stains. You have been washed by Jesus. Let this truth, friends, sink down to you. We're going to sing a song soon. Wonderful song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, all their guilty stains. Soak yourself in that reality, friends. Rejoice in it because it means that Jesus loves you. You notice that connection right at the start, verse 1? He, having loved his disciples who are in the world, he, he loved them to the end. Jesus, if you are washed by him, he loves you. Not just in an abstract kind of way, if you've been a Christian in a while, you might be able to say, yes, of course, Jesus loves me. I sang the song when I was a kid, you know. But you, really, particularly, if you have been washed by him, if by his spirit you have been drawn to come to him and put your trust in him and have your sins washed away, you can rest secure in the certain knowledge of his love for you. It might be, though, today that you know that you're not yet washed Maybe you've kind of, um, I don't know if this metaphor will continue on for too long, but maybe you've had the foot washing, you know, you've gone through the motions. You've had sort of the secondary washing, if you like. But you know for you that you haven't actually, you haven't had that bath, had that once for all cleansing for your sin that Jesus offers through the cross. Don't put it off, friends. Come to him today. He offers it to you. It is your greatest and deepest need to be washed by him.
and you can sing as we'll sing soon. Dear dying lamb, sorry, the verse before that. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Have you been washed, friends? And the next question is, having been washed, having been washed, having been served by Jesus, having been loved by him at the cost of his own life, how will you wash each other's feet? How are you in humble servants, in humble service of your servant Lord and of his people? How will you give yourself to that? Let's pray together, can we? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your power and might and authority and majesty that so incredibly expressed in your self-giving humility and love and service of people who don't deserve it, who deserve the opposite. And we're in awe of it and we thank you for it. Please wash us, perhaps for the first time, that one-off cleansing <laughs> that comes through trusting in your bloodshed in our place. Please wash us again and again as we continue to come back to that. Remind ourselves of the gospel. And please fuel us with humble hearts to serve one another. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. going to have an opportunity now um, to remind ourselves of the gospel, to be washed again in that ongoing way as we share in the Lord's Supper together, this tangible, physical reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. Um, uh, I'll lead us through that in a moment, uh, but before we get there, um, we're going to pray, as I said, a prayer of confession. It'll come up on the screen. I'll just go grab it. Slightly modified from what's on your handout, so you'll need to look up on the screen. Now, this is an opportunity for us, friends, to humble ourselves before God, um, to be filled again with thankfulness for his love for us, poured out at the cross and as we said, as we looked at it earlier, the preciousness of Jesus' washing is for those who know themselves stained by sin, but who know where to go with that stain. So we're, that's what we're doing today. Um, if you yourself, uh, perhaps you're visiting here, but if, you're, if you are trusting in Jesus, please join us. If you're, you're his person and, and this is um, your opportunity to... Again, have your feet washed by him in that way. Please do join us. 
Um, we invite families to join us as well if you would like your kids to take part in this, but we trust that parents will explain what's going on. Um, perhaps you know that this isn't you, this, this, is, this is not where you're at. That's, uh, you're so welcome here, so glad you're here. Perhaps use this opportunity um, to reflect on God's word to you today. Um, and maybe even for the first time to come to him and trust him. But friends, please do join us as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper together. Um, You can stay seated, but the words will come up on the screen as we pray this prayer of confession together. Merciful Lord, our maker and judge, we come to your table trusting not in our own goodness, but in your mercy alone. We have wronged you and need your forgiveness and cleansing. We confess our sins today, doing the works of the flesh rather than letting the fruit of the Spirit flourish in our lives, intolerance and impatience rather than forbearance, love and care, envy and jealousy of others, competing with others or feeling superior to them, rather than loving, serving, and encouraging them, pursuing happiness rather than holiness, and being slow to accept rebukes, looking for the approval of others rather than your approval, lack of self-discipline in our personal life and work rather than living for you and serving you in all things, nursing regrets, resentments, and self-pity rather than being content with you and the life you have given us, loving you, trusting you, and thanking you, serving petty and weak idols, rather than loving, praising, and serving you, the one true eternal God. We repent of these sins, turn from them, and ask your forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, as you have promised to do. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Though we are unworthy to receive your welcome, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to live and die for us, bearing the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to you. Father, help us to come by faith trusting in his body broken and his blood shed for us. Help us to love you more and to love others as you have loved us. Help us to live each day for your glory. Amen.